Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Unplug with Annie. It's the finale of the series release. It's been super great having incredible guests on the show and I think that is honestly what's made this series which has been so much of a learning experience for me personally and I hope for all of you as well. Uh, Today my finale guest is Jason Maiden. Jason is a designer entrepreneur, lecturer, sports junkie, youth advocate, um, and much, much more. He is doing some incredible work and has been doing so for the last 15 years, um, sort of combining youth culture and technology in this very interesting mix. Um, He was at Nike for a while and then he decided to leave and cultivate his own brand and he's just always doing such amazing things but I think the best thing about Jason is he really is who he is inside the business, outside the business. Um, It's something that he says himself and stands for and I love his passion for being an an opportunity and a quality champion as well wherever he goes and uh, his his faith for God and uh, his his, yeah desire to impact the youth and I think he's just um, the, the perfect guest to end this series on so without further delay I'd like to welcome him to the show. Hey Jason, welcome to Unplug with Annie. Thanks for being part of this series, the finale guest of this series. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited to uh, to catch up with you today. I'm I'm really curious to hear more about your journey, um, and I'm sure my listeners are too because you've done. It seems like you've you've done a bit of everything: designing, entrepreneur, youth advocate, sports junkie. Um, what do you what do you like doing the most? Uh, that's a great question. Um, what I like doing the most is finding time to sleep. That's a, that's a priority, you know, resting. Uh, but but honestly, I think at the intersection of everything that you mentioned that I've done has been my my desire to serve and to my gifts and talents to you know empower and enhance the lives of others. Others. Um, so. It really isn't about a project-specific outcome. It's more about my intention and the sentiments behind my intentions, which is always to to help people achieve their highest self. Um, I was very fortunate to, you know, to to live early in my life a career where I was around my heroes and people who inspired me and aspirational figures to look up to. And so now that I'm in a position of influence, I try my best to be a person that not only is congruent to how I live and how I practice my craft. But more importantly, I show up and I'm present in the communities that I represent. So that, that's, that's what really drives me. That's what I love doing the most um, is being there for people. And when did your passion of like designing happen? What was that ignition point for you? Oh, it had to be when I was around maybe 10 years old. Um, I had always drew pictures. I had always, you know, sketched it. I'd always made art. Um, but I started to get more into figuring out how to redesign or reconstruct product because I would observe and, and study the items that I liked, even if I you know, didn't personally have them because we couldn't afford a lot of things when I, when I was a child. But if I couldn't you know, personally have it, I would go to the store, I would examine materials, I would look at the shape, proportions, packaging, and I would you know, do my version or my interpretation of that product. And that's when I realized that, that I really wanted to use my craft to be able to create artifacts that help to define people's lives. And over time, throughout, you know, more exposure to design versus art and getting better language and getting better literature 
and better guidance and coaching, I fell upon the, the, the industry of industrial design. And that's when I realized that that is exactly what I wanted to do. And, and from there, um, the rest is history. And so you, you were with Nike and you left them and then you became a global design director and, and Superheroic was obviously born. Um, was that, what was your main, what was the mission when you decided to make that move? Mm -hmm. uh, primarily it was, it was focused on my children. You know, I wanted to create something that, you know, I felt was representative of who they are, the things that they were, you know, faced with, the things that, they needed to hear in order to see themselves as capable and confident. Um, and, you know, being an executive at Nike was a dream of mine, but at the same time, I also understood that it's a corporation and it's a corporation full of people and people have the ability to make change. Corporations can, but they, they, they don't if the people don't make the change first. So I left and decided that I'll make the change that I hope to see in the world. And I moved back down to Silicon Valley. I went to grad school at Stanford. So had connections and relationships here in, in, in the Bay Area. Um, got here and started to research areas where I could be effective. I looked at childhood education. I looked at um, you know childhood developmental psychology. I looked at medicine. I looked at every field possible to understand how can I impact it in a way that created an equi equitable future for children. Um, and I, once again, just kind of came right back home to physical product narratives and experiences as as the behavior change mechanism that I would be able to use to help children become their most exemplar self. Um, so at, at the core, it was my desire to be a phenomenal father that compelled me to leave. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a money thing. It wasn't a accomplishment thing. It wasn't a you know um, relationship thing. It was just my desire to, to be there for my children and to inspire and encourage them. And you're obviously like combining like sports and technology and, and creating an experience. I know that's for the kids. Um, and so were you really influenced by superhero culture growing up? Is that what kind of inspired that part of it? Yeah, very inspired by superhero culture, comic books, um, you know, narratives that, that showed human potential in, in its highest form. My, one of my early heroes was uh, Dr. Lucius Fox. So he made all the gadgets for Batman. Um, and what was amazing about Dr. Lucius Fox is that he was the CEO of Wayne Enterprises he was what we would now call a mechatronics expert because he had a little bit of mechanical engineering, computer science, electrical engineering. Um, so he was a he was a polymath, um, and at the same time, he he did not you know sanitize himself culturally. He was clearly a black man, and that was really interesting to me because normally, either we were an extreme version of ourselves, we were almost like we were almost like caricatures of ourselves when you looked at pop culture growing up, or we were complete stereotypes. And so he wasn't either one. He was a tangible, accessible version of, of, of what it meant to be someone like me that I can aspire towards. And as I started to learn more about Dr. Lucius Fox, and I started to learn more about comic book culture and the importance of the archetype of a superhero and the research done by people like George, you know, George Campbell, um, who wrote the book A Hero with a Thousand Faces, which was the basis of Star Wars in a lot of ways. That's what George Lucas um, you know, read, you know, Joseph Campbell, I'm sorry, George Lucas read that book in order to kind of formulate the first script of Star Wars. I realized that these stories that we tell ourselves matter. And if, if, if comic books can say things that people are uncomfortable saying in real life, what can I learn from that? The fact that Stan Lee used as a muse Malcolm X and Martin Luther King for the X-Men, you know, I started to realize like, this is history, this is storytelling, this is affecting change, this is impacting the way a generation sees themselves and thinks about themselves. And so it was an easy, easy, easy choice to go back to my childhood 
and to replicate what inspired me, which was a merger of, you know, accessible, aspirational people and narratives that matter, and then bringing forth, um, you know, both the narrative and the experience in real life with, with physical objects and physical experiences. Was it really challenging for you leaving such a like profound, well-known, you know, organization and company and, and then was it, was it very much a one man show, show for you when you started Superheroic or did you have like a, a, a solid team behind you backing your vision? Um, it wasn't hard to leave. Not at all. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a job. I mean, yeah. you know, um, the job that, you know, I can't fail at it a father and a husband but for a company it's, it's work at the end of the day as much as i love it it's still a job and if i leave they'll replace me and i knew that going in and i knew that leaving I, i'm a very unique talent i add value i'm not easily replaceable from a contribution standpoint but i do know it's a company and they'll move on but if something happened with my family how would they move on there is no replacement there's no next season or next quarter there's there's just now when you, when you talk about what's important and what matters when i started my company it was just me um, for a pretty long time, I had made up 10 different email addresses. One, you know, one of them were myself. They were 10 different personas. Um, there was a finance persona. There was a legal persona. There was a business strategy. There was the design. There was the marketing. There was supply chain. So I would CC myself under a different email account when I was negotiating with partners and vendors in Asia and, you know, with venture capitalists or with business development opportunities. Um, because the beautiful thing about digital interaction is people assume if they see a name on an email that it's a person. They didn't realize that I was all the person. I was all the people on the email. Uh, <laughs> I just created different accounts, and you know, and we respond back with different tones of voice. Both, you know, um, you know, uh, and, and, it, and it worked. It worked for a long time until I was able to fill out these roles with real people. Um, so it was it was a blessing to be able to leverage creativity as a way to show that I had strength because I felt like I had an army with me because I believe in myself and I don't doubt myself. And I know that my ancestors and my community and my family loves me and they support me. So I, I carried that with me as my team until I physically was able to have employees. And was there any moment for you on the journey where you really felt like, you know, questioning whether what what was in your head was going to you know work whether other people were going to believe in this vision of yours and how did you kind of stay focused at that time or any time when you kind of feel knocked down or like you're comparing yourself um to other people's journey or where you think you'd be at what is kind of your um lift up if you like hmm. Hmm. um i mean i think everybody goes through ups and downs and you have you have doubts you know um but for me, I don't, I don't compare myself to anyone else. I, I never really have. Um, it's just not my thing because I feel like what's meant for them is meant for them and what's meant for me is meant for me. And I don't want, I don't want someone else's blessings. It, that has nothing to do with me. That's what's given to them. Uh, and so I find encouragement and I find inspiration in seeing other people succeed because I, I feel like if it can happen for them, it can happen for me. So I'm the consummate cheerleader for all of my friends. Um, I actually enjoy watching people succeed because it gives me hope. It gives me a feeling of possibility, which I think we all need, is to look at another person around us and say, man, they're, they're really doing well. I'm so happy for them. One day it's gonna happen for me. That's how I, that's how I, I see it. Um, and that's what I always tell people, I could be a blessing to others while I'm waiting on my blessings. I don't have to wait until I have this big, magnificent, beautiful career or a bunch of stuff in order to be helpful. So that's, that's the first thing. In terms of feeling doubt, I don't doubt myself and I don't doubt my ideas. And I don't doubt if people believe in my vision because I have to believe first, but what I do doubt 
is will I have the ability to execute everything at the level that I hope to execute it at, you know, resources, time, energy, you know, those are the things where I question, and I don't even want to use the word doubt because it gives the, it gives it way more credit than, you know, the giftedness and the abilities and the trust that I have in myself and, and my team. Um, but I do think you have to be cautiously optimistic is, a, is the phrase that I use. You can be enthusiastic, you can be really, really focused, but you do have to go in there with some, a little bit of logic to make sure that you're planning for when things go wrong, because they will. And so the only time where I think doubt and fear kick in is when you're not prepared. And I'm constantly trying to make sure I'm prepared. So I'm asking myself the tough questions. Do I, you know, tough questions. Do I have the right data? Did I have the right teammates? Do I have the right approach? Do I have the right partners? And if I can answer those questions honestly, then that lessens the likelihood that I'll feel any fear or worry or concern, or as you put it, doubt with the decisions that I make. Good, bad, or indifferent. If I can make a decision based on the data I have today, then I'll live with that decision. Even if it doesn't work out, I don't beat myself up because I felt like I made the best choice I can make in the moment. And then I'll move on to the next moment and I'll leave that right there. I don't carry the stuff with me. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's a skill for sure. <laughs> Um, you're, you're obviously you work with youth and work in, in, in terms of you inspire the youth so much but in terms in terms of working with them and your experience with them like what, is there anything that you have learned specifically from them by working with them yeah you know working with children um, it gives you this sense of appreciation for the things that matter so uh, let me explain it in this way and if you, you've been around kids, everyone has seen kids. Most people love kids. I say most because some people say, oh, I don't like kids. But most people love children. The beautiful thing about being a child is they see the world every day for the first time. They're noticing things that we take for granted. They cherish you know, moments that we take for granted. They look at experiences as being fully immersive because of imagination. And that's what I take away from working with kids. I don't necessarily feel like being an adult is an age. I feel like being an adult is giving up on your imagination. The moment you give up on your imagination and you say, well, you know, be real, it's the real world. Then you, the, the inner child, that wonder, that curiosity dies. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us as people to keep that wonder, to keep that curiosity, because that's what allows us to see the world for what it can be. Because this world doesn't have to be the way it is. If we all decide that we want to look at it with fresh eyes and imagine it in a way that is more inclusive, creative, empathic. And that's what children do. They learn how to self-govern. They learn how to negotiate. If you watch children on the playground, they figure out things way faster than adults do. So we have to go through referendum changes and, and laws and protests. Kids figure it out just through negotiation and sharing. They just get it. Like, oh, you want a cookie? You want a snack? Okay, well, here's a part of my snack. You want to play? Like they have this really interesting relationship between one another that is pure and honest. And they say what they mean. They express how they feel. Um, they don't really care too much at an early enough judgment because they're just expressing themselves. Like they'll come to school with messy hair, they'll wear pajamas, they'll dress up like the favorite character. And just that freedom and that youthful joy is what, is what compels me. I try to carry that into my work and I, I try to carry it into how I live as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so for those listening who might be, you know, creatives wanting to like do something from scratch on their own. And I think like being a freelancer and being your own boss, there's like so much magic in that and people get attracted to that. But um, a lot of people find it difficult to stay accountable because there's no one to be accountable to. So is there any advice that you have for like creatives starting out just in terms of 
just getting started as well like you have a vision what what is that first step um and 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 i suppose how do you yeah how do you get seen for something in a market which you might feel is saturated like there's so much talent so many people doing the same thing what what can make you stand out yeah so i would say the first question is any step is the first step it doesn't have to be perfect you know something as simple as setting up your your company's email account something as simple as organizing your inbox or getting your calendar established or you know buying the url so don't look for the perfect first step just take the first step and then if you do one thing every day consistently you look at a year later you have 365 days 365 things that you've done so it's really the law of compounding when you take one action it compounds on the next action and then you get forward momentum and if people have studied physics things that are in motion tend to stay in motion and so if you are in motion each day doing one thing one small consistent thing towards your goal, then that is momentum. There is no magical moment where you say, aha, I got it. it. It doesn't work that way. That is a complete fallacy. It's a lie. And I think it sets people up to fall victim to the trappings of exceptionalism and othering where I have to be exceptionally smart or exceptionally crit. No, I'll tell you right now, the founders who are extremely successful aren't necessarily, you know, the people that are most, uh, you know, highly accomplished academically. They just were consistent. And when you talk about you know, breaking through a saturated market, it once again, a consistent, authentic narrative. That's what people respond to is authenticity. Everybody is being sold something. Everybody is being marketed to. Everybody is being told to come look at me, look at me. Um, so the thing that people are looking for now is who is this person consistently? Who is this brand consistently? Are they authentically living and breathing the way that they say they are on their social media? So you see it now with a lot of companies speaking up about equality that were quiet last year. So now it's like, it's now cool. It's a marketing tactic. It's an initiative to say you care about people when you should have done that all along. So you can see how fickle the market is and how consumers catch on to it and then they leave them. So to anyone that's, that's wondering, when is my time coming? When will people notice me? When will people care about what I'm doing? The first thing I can tell you is care about it yourself. Care about it so much that you talk about it all the time in the same way with the same level of enthusiasm. Because it only takes one person, one person to notice what you're doing and I can change your life. I'm literally living proof. It took one person to find my portfolio in an empty conference room and my life has not been the same since then. But had I given up after being rejected, had I given up after people told me that I could never get there because people didn't look like me that worked at that company in that position, or I didn't have what they called the, the perfect portfolio, I would have just gave up. But I necessarily do not care about other people's insecurities and how they stop themselves from succeeding. Cause I tell people that's your fear. That's not mine. That's your limit. That's not mine. So be careful of what people project onto you because people will project their insecurities onto you, which make you question your vision. If you feel that fire in your soul and your heart to go for something, don't let anyone else stop you from that. Just be consistent, be dedicated, be kind to yourself and know that your time will come. It will come, but do not sell yourself short thinking you need to have a gimmick or a quick initiative in order to be respected because you won't, you won't, you won't be respected. You'll be, you'll be in a, you know, relevant for the moment, but people will forget you once the moment moves on. Yeah. Is it, is it difficult though? Do you think like people are able to be authentic all the time, consistent, consistently and, and not worry about, you know, being diplomatic or targeting, multiple different people i just feel like so many people want to 
um, not necessarily be a yes man, but definitely want everyone to, to be attractive like or everyone to, to uh, have that appeal to their, their product or mm -hmm. service. Or, um, so mm -hmm. is, it, is it also about going in and understanding like who are my audience and it's okay if there's certain people who don't get me? Absolutely. You have to know who you're speaking to and you have to be, you know, you have to accept that people have opinions of you and it's none of your business. That it's none of my business what people think about me. Um, and I generally, you know, in the kindest way, don't care because I'm trying to figure out who I am. I'm trying to keep learning and growing and being kind to myself. So now if I'm supposed to worry about another human being who's also trying to figure out their own selves and what, it just becomes too much. So, I'll, you know, as my grandmother tells me, as my family tells me, what people think about you is none of your business. Um, so that's the first piece. And, and, and when you have a strong brand and understanding of what it is you're doing, you know who your audience is. So you've defined your distinct tone of voice. You know what they value. You know how to serve them. You know how to understand them and communicate with them. And whether your audience is five people or five million people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size of the audience. There's a lot of people who have large followings but have zero impact. And I think COVID-19 exposed that. There's a lot of influences that are influencing because they don't have a captive audience. People now have more important things to do, right? And so it, it, I would say, don't get discouraged. Just be consistent, serve the people who matter to you. Um, if you look at, you know, I'll use myself as an example. I've never deviated from the messages that matter to me. I've never deviated. If you go to my timeline on any platform, it's family, it's faith, it's creativity, it's community, and that's consistently who I am. And uh, education is another pillar. And people who are into those things, they come and have conversations with me. People who aren't, they may like a picture, but they don't reach out. They don't, they don't follow. And I'm not mad at those people. I would much rather spend time in the areas where I'm welcomed and I am, you know, considered and I'm cared for than trying to pander and pull in people from areas that don't want me there. That's a waste of energy. And I tell people, you have a finite amount of time and energy. Either you're going to use it fighting for something or fighting against something. Fighting against something is a position of oppression where you're stuck and you feel beat up and you don't know if you're gonna to get to the end. Fighting for is a position of passion and purpose. So I fight for the things that I care about. I fight for women and equality. I fight for people of color to be seen in the, you know, in the highest form and represented correctly. I fight for fair education. I fight for the well-being of our children. I fight for the well-being of my community. And as long as I'm doing those things, the people who care about that too will trust me enough to listen to some of the things I talk about and they will hold me accountable you know, so when they see me in public, they're like, this is the same guy. He's the same person on social that, I, that, he, that he is when he's talking to three, you know, three families at, at a playground. You know, I've had a person walk up to me in public and say, man, it's crazy to see you, you know, online inspiring people. But here I am in a restaurant and I'm watching you do it in real life. Like, you really are this person. I'm like, this is genuinely who I am. And if I change any of that, then I'm lying to myself, which means I'm lying to the audience. So I think the consistency in who you are matters and you will, you will attract more people to you when you are authentically yourself. And it's not about being diplomatically correct. I won't ever offend anyone. I won't say anything that is intended to hurt people's feelings. But the moment I try to figure out what works for everybody, then I dilute my message. And it's better to be, you know, we use a metaphor of coffee or tea. I don't want watered down tea. I don't want lukewarm tea. It's either hot or it's cold. That's it. Mm -hmm. I'm a hot or cold person. And yeah. that's how I am. Either my message is going to resonate or it doesn't. But if I try to be for everyone, then I'm nothing to anyone, you know? Yeah. And just in terms of the current climate as well, like, do you see 
do you have quite a positive outlook in terms of you know like the future the changes that uh, obviously we want to happen um you know more equal opportunities for people of color um different backgrounds and races and um particularly of course like the black lives matter movement which is happening there's a lot of kind of backlash now i feel um there's there's people who want to support the movement who are also just feeling a little bit like afraid and i feel like a lot of people are really scared because when they try and do something they're also getting backlash for doing that and just being questioned as to whether they're being authentic because where were they this whole time um yeah, yeah. what 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 are your thoughts on on this yeah, I would say to anyone that, that feels scared to receive backlash, um, imagine how scared it is, how scared we feel to, to go to our mailbox. You know, imagine how scared I feel to drive around my, and this is not saying metaphor, I mean, literally me. I go to my mailbox and I put on a Stanford sweater to make sure that people know that I went to Stanford. So maybe just maybe they treat me different and don't think I'm a suspect in my community. So imagine for one second that how you feel in this moment is how I feel in every single moment of my life. Every conversation I have can be the reason someone kills me. Every disagreement, I cut someone off in traffic. I stand too close to someone in an elevator. I reach for something in a bag. I go to an area and have my headphones on and I can't hear someone screaming at me and I turn around with my phone in my hand. That's every single decision I make is a life and death decision. And so when you're afraid to make a mistake once, please understand, I'm afraid to make a mistake at any time of my day. I have to consciously decide that I need to make myself less threatening just to exist. I I'm 6'2", I'm a tall, big person. So I have to make sure that anyone that's around me feels safe that I'm even in the room. Before I even feel safe, I have to make sure everyone around me feels safe. Not because of anything I've done, but because of people's perceptions of me. So I think if someone is upset with you for trying, Listen to why they're upset. Do not take it personal because this isn't a thing that just happened. This is 400 and plus years of systematic and systemic oppression. And no one has ever had a chance to express how they feel openly without people telling us that it's not real. Imagine shaking up a bottle of soda and then expecting it not to spill out when you first open it. So we got to let the emotions spill out. And the thing that's going to help is even if people are upset, show up again show up again and keep showing up because you're going to wear them down with love. I have a lot of friends who are like, Jason, I don't know what to say to you. I don't even know how to help you. I'm a white person. I'm a Latino person. You know, my family's Afro Latino. So we have, you know, it's different people who have European descent and people who have African descent and indigenous blood and Latino community. I have friends in, across Asia. And when I say Asia, I mean the continent, not just people say Asia and say China. So India, Pakistan, like everywhere. And people are like, how do we help you? I say, you know what, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to say the wrong things, because I don't even know what the right thing is I want to hear. But the fact that you keep showing up, that's what matters to me. If I have a different attitude with you, and it feels like I'm upset, don't take it personal. It's just no one's listened to us before. So it's just like when you find a kid and the kid wants to express themselves and they talk a million miles a minute, like calm down, what is it you're trying to say? That's the moment we're in right now. We're mm -hmm. for the first time black people are being told that we want to hear what happens to you. And we actually want to change, you know, the system so that it doesn't happen to you again. And we're like, oh my gosh, y'all listening? Okay, here's all the stuff. So once we get through the shock, now we can get to the stabilizing and the normalizing and we can have meaningful conversations. But to the people who want to help, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Just, just please keep showing up. It matters. And it matters. And trust me, it's not personal. We are not mad. People are not upset. 
that you're trying to help. We just have never had someone listen to us. So it's all coming out and may not, it may not come out in the right way. Um, the people who are creating what's called looting, that's not us. That's not people who are protesting. The looters are agitators who are actually being paid to go in and disrupt what is, what is happening. I've been to a lot of these movements. It's peaceful until after hours and then you see paid agents from whatever entity show up and start lighting things on fire. These aren't people from the community. And so they're not black people. We have no interest in destroying our property. It makes zero sense for us to do it. And so I just hope that people continue to show up because it matters and there's no perfect way. It's just it, the only way is, is through love. So just keep loving and be empathic and understand we're carrying generations of pain, generations of pain that will not be solved in six weeks and with companies changing their logos on Instagram. <laughs> it won't. It, it's going to be a gen several generations before we, before we see the impact of this moment. And we may not even be allowed to see it. It may be our great grandchildren. But the change starts right now. It's starting right now. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, no, that's such a that's such a great point. But I, I do hope that there is some cemented change from all of this. I think it was like much needed. But just another thing that I wanted to touch upon was obviously faith is such a big part of your life. Um, and mm -hmm. and with that, I think it seeps into it something which would seep into every area of your life. So how much do you feel it has, you know, helped you like in terms of being a foundation in, in decision making and, and how much did that um, get impacted in terms of your like work decisions, uh, of course, personal decisions and personal life. But do you do you feel impacted by that in every area of your life? Uh, every single area, every single area, how I treat people how I do business, who I do business with. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, 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 it's the backbone of my decision making. Cause I tell people, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get to, you know, at, at Nike, the, when I worked there, they were, the, where the executive set was called JM4, John McEnroe 4, every building is named after athletes. And so it was a well-known thing. If you want to climb the corporate ladder, your goal is to get to JM4. You want to sit on that floor because that's what all the C-suite executives have set. For me, I would tell my colleagues, I'm not trying to get to JM4. I'm trying to get to heaven. So I, I think about at the end of my journey, hopefully, Lord willing, it's a really long journey, that I want God to say, well done. You didn't step over the person who was homeless and ignore them. You didn't see the woman who was abused and didn't speak up. You didn't see the child that was hungry and didn't feed him. You didn't see an injustice and turn your, turn your eyes away from it because you didn't want to lose your privileges. That's what I'm striving for. I'm not striving necessarily to, you know, to be a gajillionaire. I want to be financially stable. I want to be able to take care of my family. But I get that this thing that I'm going through, this thing we all go through in the middle of our existence, which we call life, because we begin somewhere that we don't understand and we go somewhere that we don't understand. And the middle is the only thing that we fully experience with, our, with this consciousness. And so while I'm in the in-between, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best that I can for the least of us. And so that's why when I pray and I talk about these things, I'm always asking God to extend whatever favor he gives me to anyone that needs it. Because I know that anything he gives to me is not for me. So I give it right back. And so that's why faith is important, because I can't necessarily say I've gotten to where I've gotten to without faith. You know, it's, it's faith and it's my own work ethic and my intelligence and the abilities I was given. But it's still the fact that I know that the provider is greater than the provision itself. And if I ever take my eyes off of that, I feel that I won't be able to do the work that I'm able to do. I won't be able to have the opportunities that I have because I start to covet things. 
And when you covet a thing, that becomes your idol and that becomes what you worship. And so I'm very consciously not trying to worship stuff and not trying to worship a thing because that's fleeting. And that doesn't give me any feelings of self, you know, of self-centeredness and love. So I lean into my faith as a way to, you know, understand my purpose in this in-between, you know, and it's because I, I know that I was telling my wife, I think some people look at life as being born. I look at life as being sent. We are all sent here to do something in this grand narrative. And it's up to us to figure out what that something is and trust that that thing is real. Even if it seems absurd, we got to trust that that's our thing. That's, that's the role we play in this narrative. And as a, you know, an actress and a, a performer and an artist, you get the role of performance. We all are on this grand stage and we're all performing. We just have to accept our roles and, and, and play that role to the best of our ability. Yeah. And, and you, you did say once in a chat, I remember just in regards to like being a workaholic and finding that balance of, and I think like self-worth is like such an important um, topic at present, just with yeah. mental health and just, I think so many people are struggling with that. But when, you're, when, yeah. when your identity is attached so much to what you do, um, yeah. how, do, how do you kind of find yourself striking that balance and, and reminding yourself that, okay, you know, this is not everything. It's not, it's not who I am. If this is taken away tomorrow, I'm not gonna just like break down and freak out. Yeah, oh, and that's, um, you, that's a great question. I, uh, there was something that was told to me years ago, I forget by who, but you're never as good as they say you are and you're never as bad as you think you are. And, that, and that's how I kind of live my life. And, you know, having kids and having, you know, relationships um, with friends who hold me accountable um, is the greatest, I would say, normalizer for me because my kids make fun of me. They don't care. They don't, I'm just a dad. They don't, you know, so they keep me completely humble. They make fun of me. And I love it because it's like, you know, you don't take yourself so serious. Um, for a long time prior to having, you know, um, a bit of peace and finding my own restoration and recovery through therapy and just, you know, unpacking the things I've seen in my life at a very young age and experienced and, you know, in the, in the inner city and, you know, friends and so on and so forth. What I realized is that performative activities were attractive to me because it made me increase my self-worth, how people would value me. Because as I mentioned to you earlier, when I look at the narratives that are placed on television, you see that my body, my skin tone is not valued. And I felt if I have more, you know, uh, accolades and accomplishments and, you know, I do all the right things, then maybe they will value me more and I won't have to be concerned with my safety. That's not necessarily true though. That's a complete, you know, lie and myth of black exceptionalism that we're told that we have to be, you know, work twice as hard to get half as far, which means if you mathematically walk that out to be, you know, equal, I got to work four times as hard to be exceptional. I got to work eight times as hard, you know? So I'm the person that works eight, you know, eight, eight cubed. So I'm, I'm, I'm eight, you know, in three dimensions. So it's, 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 uh, it burns you out because you're trying to do the thing that allows people to see you and value you. And once I realized that I first need to value myself, I need to love myself. I need to care for myself. I need to accept who I am and that the validation and external, you know, um, you know, praise doesn't really do anything. It's temporal, but the, but the, the patience and the peace and the kindness that I practice with myself, that is the currency that I trade in. I don't trade in the currency of popularity and, and public appeal. I trade in the currency of self-love and self-reflection and having a deep, 
relationship with my innermost being and that, that quiet voice that we all have that helps us make sound decisions, which is discernment. And so through discernment and prayer and meditation and just being honest with myself, I was able to, to break free from the addiction of performing for the world to value me. And now I value myself because I know that I'm only in this world for a finite amount of time. So why perform in a way that puts the power in the world's hands when I'm performing for an audience of one? You know, I'm not performing for 7.3 billion people. I'm performing for an audience of one. And as long as I feel, you know, that I've done my best and I feel I've done my best representing, you know, what God wants me to do, then I'm a happy camper. I'm a, I'm a happy man. Um, and that, that's what matters to me at this age of my life, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's like a, a perfect tone to, <laughs> to end the discussion on. That's really great. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out. I know you're, it's super okay. hectic for you, um, but thank you for, for taking time out and doing this. Uh, no problem, no problem. Thank you for making space for me and uh, I appreciate what you're doing and hopefully the conversation is helpful to, you know, whomever hears it.